read along as I speak it. Um, so if you miss students last week, it was pretty awesome. My boy Bino uh, preached in a good old high school talking about becoming a Christian. And uh, Nick preached in uh, J-High uh, talking about becoming a Christian as well with the chocolate milk analogy, right? Anyone else remember that? Pretty sweet. Yeah, I love it. So uh, we, we, we talked about that. But this morning we're going to take kind of like a half step backwards, if you will, to take a step forward and ask the question, where in the world does faith come from? Why do you believe in maybe your friend does not. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about God's chosen people, meaning the doctrine of election. And as we begin to cover the topic of election, a number of people ask me this, okay? Why would you spend covering, why would you spend time covering the doctrine of election inside of students? Don't you think their little minds can grasp it? Do you think they can? And internally, my response is kind of sinful, okay? And something like, well, by that question, it proves that many of uh, our kids are already smarter than you are, okay? They can do algebra too, I can't, right? It's a big idea, that's true. It's a big topic, and yes, it does actually apply to your lives 100%. So for me, the doctrine of election was one of the most formative doctrines in my existence of, of Christianity, and transformational and important in my life. And as I wrestled through the idea of election, my worship, my understanding, and my trust in God grew exponentially. Okay, the big idea on election is who pursues who in relationship first, and also who initiates faith in the other. Humans in God or God in humans. The election discusses how people are saved, okay? Not what it means for people to become a Christian. That was last week, but rather what must happen for people to first become a Christian at all. Ultimately, the question is what happens First, in salvation. Do you choose God or does God choose you? And it boils down to two questions. We'll wrestle through the, the first one primarily next week, but it is, it's this. Is God good? Is God good? And the second, one, the second one is, where does faith come from? Where does faith come from? We'll start in our text today, and we'll finish next week, but go ahead and read with me. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. And it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Perfect sound effect. Uh, pray with me. God, thank you so much for today. God, I'm reminded that you are the only one that can make 85 degrees 45. God, you are completely in control. You're sovereign and you're good. And I pray that this morning that we, as, we, as we begin to think through and, and work through and kind of digest this topic, that God, you would, you would allow it to be something that would stir our hearts towards worship. God, that you would not let this be trivia because who cares? But Jesus, that it would apply to our lives in a way that spurs us to worship you with everything that we are and everything that we have. So if you would, go ahead and just pray for yourself for a second, that God would speak to you this morning and that he'd move in your heart.
And then if you would, go ahead and pray for me. I'm a little nervous this morning. That God would speak through me and it'd be helpful to you. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, I want to take a second uh, and de- dedicate this illustration uh, to none other than the Kel Castro, okay? Uh, Casto, not Castro. I don't know why I said that. It's terrible. So, uh, so I- I'm going to pretend to be Kel for a second, okay? So guys, if you didn't know, I'm kind of a nerd, okay? And I love Lord of the Rings, all right? So uh, that's true for me as well. One of my favorite movies, if you could combine the three into one, right, that would be my favorite movie, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, all right? And uh, in this trilogy, there's this this guy named Frodo Baggins, and he's a hobbit, all right? Hobbits are small. Apparently, they cry a lot if you've seen the movies, right? They have hairy feet, which is gross, and yet he is the the one that is chosen to bring the ring all the way to Mordor, though he is the least of these. And Frodo volunteered to bear this burden, carrying the ring to Mordor, a task with which no one could, uh, else could undertake as the ring would uh, kind of corrupt whoever carried it, okay? It would whisper sweet, tempting lies to them and to whoever went near it. And as a hobbit, for whatever reason, Frodo had a natural resistance kind of built up against this ring. But as the movies dragged on, you can see that Frodo was becoming slowly more and more captivated by its power. And against all odds, right, after many lives given for the cause, Frodo makes it to the fires of Mount Doom and has a chance to destroy the very thing that has cast the entire world into war. So we're going to watch almost all of the ending scene, and we'll talk about it. is mine. 
I'm not going to give away the ending. Not at all. No way. No way. It's good. Spoiler alert. Frodo succeeds. But Frodo has a chance to save everyone that he knows, right? Everyone that he loves, restore everything to right in the world. He knows that his friends are down below fighting a losing battle. And the only chance to save them from death is to deposit the ring into the lake of fire. He has experienced firsthand the corruption that the ring brings and has felt the weight of having to bear that burden. Frodo does not love the ring. He has said many times that he wished the ring had never come to him with sad, teary blue eyes of Elijah Wood, right? Yet in the moment when he could destroy it, he was unable to give up the ring. Frodo, when faced with the chance to throw it over into the fire, becomes like a demonic hobbit, right? Do you see his face? He was like, really scary, okay? And he puts the ring back on his finger rather than ridding himself and the world of it forever. The ring had hold over him much in the same way that sin has hold over us. The ring had hold over him in much of the same way that sin has hold over us, whether we love it, love our sin, or hate it. Sin holds over us is strong, okay? So strong that we will even destroy it, or sorry, whether we love our sin or hate it, sin, sin's hold is strong over us. That we would destroy it, even if we had a chance based on our own free will, is unlikely, much like we just saw with Frodo, right? We are not much different than Frodo. Weak, unable to resist the very thing that we are enslaved to without the power of the Holy Spirit being inside of us. Romans 6, 17 tells us that we were once slave to sins. If you trusted in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. But if you have not, you are a slave to sin. Every single human except Jesus has been a slave to sin. We have been held captured in the shackles even without realizing that we were in it. It's not as if we were struggling do-gooders in need of sometimes assistance from the divine. We are not what one might call a great investment. Romans 3.10 tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are in open rebellion against God, every thought, action, and deed before Christ. Sin is a heavy burden to carry, much like the ring. It is all-consuming and only leads to death. But there is good news in this, right? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And friends, those verses are the only good news for sinners. Romans 5, uh, 10 later tells us that while we were still enemies of God, we were saved by the blood of Christ upon the condition of faith, which means that if you don't have faith in Christ, you are still an enemy of God. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that God has been pursuing man throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. Throughout the entire known eternity by us, God has been pursuing us, and even before it. Let's go back to our text this morning and break it down. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Through Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross that traded places with you and I, through his victory over Satan's sin and death, his resurrection when he conquered them, God has blessed the Christian with the spiritual blessing of salvation. Salvation is a blessing. Verse four is clear how this is done. He says this, he chose us, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. God was thinking of you before the world was made. The spiritual blessing that God has blessed the Christian with uh, in Christ before they were even born, right? Before Adam and Eve ever ate the apple, right? Before the world began, God foreknew. Ephesians 1, 4 says that God chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Before the beginning, the Father chose to adopt a people to worship him as God, to bring them into his family. Verse 5 would say this way, he says, in love, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean? What does that mean? The verse is saying that God actually predestined, meaning he determined beforehand the destiny of a group of people. Before they were born or before they had done anything right or wrong to be adopted into the family of God as God's children. Those people are the people who trust in Jesus for their salvation. God determined before the foundation of the world whether a person would have saving faith. How does God do this? According to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God chooses the people he has predestined according to his will. And we only know as much of God's will as he chooses to share with us, right? The reason why God has chosen to predestine a person or a people for himself might feel a little bit unsettling to some of us. But I think mostly it's simply because we don't know the why. God chose to do it that way according to the purpose of his will, to maximize his glory. And if God is good, then I can trust him, that he has the best for us in mind. God doesn't predestine according to the purpose of which humans are his favorite, right? It's not how it works. The only answer that makes sense for whether or not a person worships Jesus as Lord is whether or not he has changed their hearts and unblinded their eyes spiritually. I don't know why God chooses a person and not the other. But I do know that he uses the broken things of the world to bring him the most glory. So this act, this act of predestination as a name is called election, okay? Election defined as an act of God before creation in which he chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in themselves, meaning anything they've done right or wrong, but only because of his sovereign and good pleasure. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means that you and I play no role in the initiation of salvation. What do I mean by that? I mean that faith faith comes from God. Faith comes from God. And without God initiating that faith in us, we would never have faith to begin with. 
Faith comes from God. And without God initiating that faith in us, we would never have faith to begin with. The great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he would say it this way. He says this, I believe that the, uh, the doctrine of election, because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me because for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. And Jesus would say it this way, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go bear fruit. So who chooses you? Jesus first chooses you. God has always been the one who initiates salvation. Though we are constantly running away, God is constantly pursuing us anyway. Throughout all of history, God chooses to choose a people to worship for himself based upon the purpose of God's own will. God doesn't choose people because he sees something special in them, right? Or that he's picking an A-team of winners, okay? God doesn't choose people to follow him because they're intrinsically better in any way or have a special merit or a special value within themselves. Quite honestly, very often it's the opposite. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 would say it this way. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's big stuff. The Lord uses the weak and the foolish to shame the wise and the strong. And before we go on, before we go on, it's important to note that this is not a new idea. This is not a new concept. This is the way that God has operated throughout all of history, right? So Abraham, think about Abraham. Who was Abraham? Was he a huge player in the, the you know, Middle Eastern world back then? No, he's just a regular dude. Chosen by God to go and be the father of a great nation, Israel. Was Abraham in any way superior other people, I don't think so. Abraham was just a regular guy. Moses, right? Moses was chosen to lead his people out of Egypt. Was Moses particularly charismatic, right? No, no. Was he a lifer in Egypt with the slaves? No, no. He was gone for 40 years, and this guy had a stutter. He didn't want to talk, and he was the mouthpiece of God to Pharaoh. God said, hey, Moses, you're going for me. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt, Go ahead and finish the sentence for me, okay? Israel's was God's blank people. Chosen people, there we go. God reminds Israel multiple times that he did not choose them because they were a great, Egypt, or a great nation like Egypt, right? He chose them because they were small and unimportant. In Isaiah 41, 14, God compares Israel to a worm, meaning insignificant. Why did God choose them? simply because he loved them according to his purpose of his will. God chose King David to be king over Israel. Anyone remember what King David was doing before he was king? Hanging out with sheep, right? Not exactly the guy that I would want to be king, okay? And he was also the youngest of all his brothers. 
So back in the day, that meant he had the least amount of influence in his family. Okay? There was no earthly reason for David to be chosen as the next king of Israel. When you look at the New Testament, you see that Jesus calls each and every one of his disciples. The disciples didn't search him out and say, hey, man, can I follow you? I think you're pretty cool. Jesus' disciples were not an all-star cast of humans. They were fishermen, tax collectors, and rebels. They were the people on the fringes of the society, not the guys who went to Harvard. They weren't the best of the best of the best, sir. Men in black reference. Jesus is the one who chooses Peter to lead the early church, which to me doesn't make any sense at all, right? Seemingly, there were better options inside of the 12 disciples, namely somebody who didn't rebuke him publicly and deny him three times, right, as he was going to the cross. I probably would have chosen John, but I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And if you go look at the book of Acts, God chooses Saul, who then became Paul, and Saul was a murderer and a persecutor of the early church, the person who orchestrated the first martyr of any Christian in history, Stephen. It was Paul. It was Paul that was chosen to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. When you pan out and you look at the biblical narrative in a wide view, you see that it's pretty clear that God chooses people or peoples for himself as people to serve him. And generally this concept is easier to accept but when it's general, but when it's personal, people start having trouble with it. When it's about you and me, we start having trouble with it. In the end, when you boil it down, one thing must happen first, either the chicken or the egg, right? In this case, who initiates faith, God or man? We're not playing around with semantics, okay? We're not playing around with semantics, Does it really matter who comes first? Yes, because your answer of who initiates faith first, God or man, and relationship between God and man shapes your framework and your basic understanding and your bias as you bring to the text, as you read the scriptures and how you see God moving and acting inside of eternity, inside of the scriptures. And I believe with all certainty that from the very moment that Adam ate the apple, the first sin that man has been running from God from that point onward in eternity. And if you'll remember, in the garden, God calls out to Adam. What does Adam do? He hides from God behind a bush. Not super effective. It is God who has been pursuing man throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. Not because we're awesome, Not because we have some sort of intrinsic merit, supreme value, or special talent. Not because my beard looks wonderful, right? But just because he is that kind of God. One who pursues his creation, though they reject him continuously. And yet no matter, verse 4 back in Ephesians says this, that he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And guys, that's a really big deal. Really big deal. Why? Why? Because it was, if it was based on something of our own doing, we would never be saved in the first place. Hear me in this. Hear me in this. You and I are not able to choose God on our own. We're not. We already read, have read Romans 3. Those verses tell us that no one seeks for God. Which in the Greek means no one seeks for God. 
Okay? Nobody self-initiates seeking for God. Uh, later in the verse, it tells us that no one does good, not even one. Maybe you're different than me, but I would think that seeking for God would be a good thing. Would you say that initiating faith would be a good thing? I think so. I'd say it'd be the best thing. And we can't do that apart from God. If we can't do any good apart from God, how could we do the very best thing? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, 6 through 7, Scripture says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garden. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. Even our most righteous deeds are filthy rags in God's eyes. And this isn't like the rag that you use to clean the toilet, okay? The Hebrew word here is more explicit than that, all right? There are some young kids in the room, so I'm not going to say anything, right? Uh, But essentially, if you've hit puberty, there's something that happens, and it's a gross rag. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says this. It would continue to say this. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We are described as dead men. Can a dead man do anything? Anything at all? No. Can a dead man choose to initiate faith with God? That sounds like doing something to me. Dead men are dead. They can't do anything at all. And yet God gives us good news. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, you have been saved. Who is the one who gives faith? It must be God if we're dead. It must be God if our good deeds are like filthy rags in his eyes. It must be God if no one seeks after him, if no one does good. And if no one does good, how can they do the best thing, which is choosing God? However, however, you must know that if you have faith in Christ Jesus, you can be assured that God chose you before time, before the foundation of the world, to be a part of his family. And in response to being told all this this morning, some of you guys have a billion questions. We'll get to all those next week, right? This is a three-hour sermon uh, condensed into 10 minutes. I've wrote 4,500 words, okay? Uh, I have 14 pages of notes, not manuscripts, so those are different, okay? We have to break somewhere. So today we're going to leave it with our inability to seek after God by ourselves. And also, I don't want to walk away this morning having learned something new but having no way to apply it, right? That's called trivia, that's called trivia. Yesterday, or a couple days ago, I learned that scientists found seven new planets 40 light years away from Earth. And I'm like, cool, does nothing for my life, right? Zero impact. That's called trivia. I don't want you to walk away with that this morning. This isn't trivia, and our topic is not trivial. This is one of the most unveiling subjects to understand the state of our hearts. When one resists the doctrine of election, I've found that it's never a head problem. It's never a head problem. It's always a heart problem. We resist the choosing of God for ourselves either because we are too self-deprecating or too self-righteous. If you want to debate the doctrine of election with me, I mean, I'm happy to sit down. I'm happy to talk through it with you. And I want to talk through on the basis of Scripture 
to gain clarity on what God speaks to and how he speaks to it. And I've often said this, man, if you could present one verse, just one verse, that would tell me, right, that we initiate faith with God rather than God first initiating faith with us, I would believe you. And I'd change my entire theological stance. Why? Why? There's two reasons why I think our heart kind of resists this. And the first one is, man, my heart often doesn't believe that I'm worthy of being chosen or being loved by God or loved by anybody at all. And I think the second one is this. It's two. I desperately want something to do with saving myself. I want to be part of my own salvation story. I desperately want to put my finger on a reason why God loved me and he chose me. Some of you can't fathom the fact that God chose you. You know yourself. You know if you're being honest, you probably don't love yourself. You wouldn't choose you if you could choose. Some of you have never been picked first in anything in your life. You can't understand why in the world God would choose to have a relationship with you, to pursue you first. And for you guys, I want you to listen to me. I have good news. I have good news. You're right in a way. Okay, Dan, how's that comforting? Okay. It's not. It's even worse than you think. You are worse and more undeserving of God's choosing and God's grace than you or I could ever believe. But you're way more loved and you're way more cared for and you remain way more thought of than you could ever imagine by the king of the universe. If you are in Christ, God chose you, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, or that you're good enough, but rather simply because God chose to love you anyway. And some of you guys need to hear that this morning, that God chose to love you. You need to stop seeking approval in the things that don't matter and by the things that don't matter with people who don't matter. God is enough. He can be enough for you. Amidst a world that seems very unfriendly at times, you can rest at peace when your head hits the pillow because the God of the universe has loved you enough to predestine you before the foundation of the world he thought of you. I used to tell my wife this all the time and probably don't do it enough, but I always tell, I always tell her, I love you for you because you're you. Okay? Translation. Translation. I love you because I love you. That's it. You can't earn my love. No matter what you do, I couldn't give more of my love to you than I can at this very moment. You can't earn my love. I give it freely to you. And on the flip side, no matter what you do, you cannot remove my love from you. No matter what you do, no matter how you hurt me, and guys, in marriage, it's a when, not an if, right? You cannot take my love from you. Why? Simply because I have chosen to love her forever and always. She needs not earn my approval. She has my love. And that is the way that God feels about you if you trust in Jesus. You already have his love. There's no need to earn it, just to follow him. And on the flip side, we have self-righteous people, okay? Others of us tend to think that God made an incredible investment, right, when he sent Jesus to the cross for us, right? A wise decision in choosing us for his team. And if we're being honest, 
we have a tendency to think that we're a little more awesome than we actually are. We fail to realize that we're captivated by sin. We think we're pretty good, that we have a worship disorder that is where we worship something other than God as God is preeminent in our lives. And the danger here is that in this room, a lot of, man, we're pretty good kids. As a whole, we're pretty good people as far as everyone tells us. When we play the comparison game, you and I, we generally come out on top when we compare to other kids. We do the right thing. We make good grades. We excel in what we're asked to do. We obey our parents. And let me tell you, man, that's God's grace on your life. Praise him for every one of those good things. But to realize that sin is not simply about right or wrong action, right? Right action with impure heart is still sin. Romans 14, 23 says that anything not done in faith is sin. The question is, man, are you walking in faith in every single aspect of your life? I bet that some of us don't believe that we're actually that much of a sinner. We're not that bad. You know, the kind of thing, the kind of person that brings nothing to the table at all before God. The kind of sinner that Scripture is described as being completely incapable of doing anything good on their own without God's unending grace and presence in their lives. And if we're being honest, you might not be that concerned with this, with the sin in your life because you don't think you're that bad to be condemned by it. In your minds, man, sin is small potatoes. It's trivial and common. God can get over it by looking at how awesome you are and realizing how valuable you are to the kingdom of God. And that sounds so arrogant, doesn't it? I'm being facetious, a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. Some of us do. Some of us believe that God shows you just enough to choose him back, thereby entering into a partnership with him for your salvation. You wouldn't say it directly based on your own merit, right? You believe that God, but you believe that if God has asserted an open-ended invitation, you would take it. That you would initiate faith with God without initiating faith, uh, without God initiating faith specifically first. Why? Because inherently, when we're self-righteous, we think we're pretty good. We think we're pretty good. We think that we're special. And you are. You are. Just not in this way. Every single one of us is blinded by sin. If that's you this morning, I need to tell you something. It's that you need to repent. You do. You need to repent of pridefulness, your arrogance, that's what caused Satan to fall, and the fact, and face the fact that you're a sinner in need of a savior, that you're a dead man in need of life, that you're, um, your good needs, man, they're not good enough in God's eyes. That you're not the one who seeks God. That God seeks you. Some of you are like, man, Dan, you're being really aggressive on this this morning. Hard words make soft people. Hard words make soft people. And the hardest of all are the self-righteous. So the good news of the Christian gospel is this. Not that you have saved yourself, played any role, part of salvation at all, but instead Jesus chose you on the cross and did it all for you so that you don't have to. There's a verse in Ephesians that says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. And guys, if we choose, we choose to do something which can be merited as a work, Man, I want to encourage you guys, as we walk through this, we're going to just leave it there. 
It's kind of depressing, but we're going to leave it there, all right? We've built kind of the concrete. We're going to talk next week about why does it matter that we do evangelization, okay? Uh, if, are we all robots? No, we're not, right? Is God good? Does God send people to hell? No, right? Do we have free will? But right now, I'm going to leave us there. We're going to come and worship in a second, but I want you to know that as we walk through this, okay, together, that you've been saved by grace through faith. As the band comes up, no band's coming up because worship time. Cool, good. We, we're going to talk through this together. We have a couple questions that are going to be on the screen, okay? We'll break out like we normally do. And I, and, I, and I want you to think through these before we break. Which one are you? Do you struggle with being unlovable or do you struggle with being self-righteous? Does God or man initiate faith? What do you think and why? And how does God go about electing a people for himself? So we'll talk about those things, but I want to encourage you all this morning that if you're in Christ, you've been chosen. That God has thought of you before the foundation of the world. That he has loved you and that you've been picked. That's amazing. And if you haven't yet, God's calling you. Jesus is calling you. I want to encourage you that this morning that you would submit your life to Christ and that you would come to know him and worship him as king. So pray with me. God, thank you for today. And as we kind of talk through things that are hard and difficult and not the cheeriest message, it doesn't mean that things that sting aren't good. And God, I'm reminded of your deep love for us, of your care for us, of your tenderness towards us. Jesus, I thank you that you did come down on the cross to die for our sins, that you did save the world. And I pray that as we kind of work through these issues, that, Lord, you would work in our hearts and cause what we talk about today to spur us on to worship you more. We love you, Jesus. It's your name. Amen. All right, guys. Keeping this kind of posture, we're going to go straight to our groups, all right? Sixth grade back there, seventh and eighth grade, middle carpets, high school.